see, we're on a mission from God. To the podcast. This is your host, Amanda Qureshi, also known as Q. And today's guest is a both a friend and colleague. Her name is Sarah Orman. And over the last couple of years, I've come to know her through uh, ongoing conversations about writing and reading and all these things that we have in common. She's really one of my favorite conversation partners, and I feel really lucky to have been able to know her through my job. So welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, and I feel the same about you. You are just sort of a delightful surprise, because we don't even work in the same area. But um, how did we, how did we start hanging out? Oh, I made it my business to get to know you. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> I remember when you started and you were friends with Carolyn Austin. Oh, yeah. Who Carolyn and I were in a book club together um, of Jewish people, mostly women, reading books that were mostly about Jewish things or by Jewish authors. It's called Book Nicks appropriately. And then she pointed you out to me, I think at convention one year, and I just loved your hair and your glasses. And I was like, we must be friends. Excellent. (laughs) Yeah. So my hair and glasses are almost always eccentric. And I, that it's sort of like a, it either, it either repels the right people or it attracts the right people. Or some some kind of like a a litmus test or something. Yeah. 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 yeah, Totally. Well, I'm glad to hear that strategy is working. Absolutely. It works with me. I always notice accessories. Well, so we're going to start the podcast with my icebreaker, my infamous icebreaker questions. And then we'll just go ahead and talk because I have so many things I actually want to talk to you about. So question number one is, what is the last thing that you watched on TV? Oh, well, that's easy because I'm only watching one thing on TV right now. And that is Schitt's Creek with my family. Um, I don't watch TV much and my children demand, they think it's actually like their God-given right to watch a show every Uh night, Uh um, even if it doesn't like realistically fit into the timetable for the evening. But um, we have managed to find Schitt's Creek and it's like a show that everyone loves, which it's really fun because I have not seen a depiction of siblings in a show like that before. Have you watched the show? Oh, yes. I love it. Yeah, everybody has, right? We're behind because we're only on like season three. But I have an older boy and a younger girl. And they both in, you know, minor ways kind of resemble David and Alexis Rose, like in the kind of fussiness and then the way that they fight. And it's actually, I think, really therapeutic for them to Mm -hmm. see that and to see how David and Alexis are gradually becoming closer and closer. The thing I love about that show is that everybody gets better. Like everybody starts in one place and then kind of grows. Yeah. Yeah. I like it a lot. I like it too, because I feel like it's actually one of the most wholesome depictions of a family that Mm -hmm. that they're going to be like, they bicker and they argue whatever, but they're pretty solid with one another. And there's a genuine, there's a genuine love between them. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. can tell, like, there's a lot of sitcoms or TV shows about families where it's, it, there's just, there's this kind of biting humor. Yeah, uh, I think a and, lot of it 
comes yeah, from the Simpsons, in my opinion, like that, that, and like, what was that show? Uh, Married with Children, uh-huh. you know, oh, yeah, like yeah. that kind of cynical, and I, I didn't watch Married with Children much, but my kids were watching the Simpsons before we found Schitt's Creek, mm-hmm. and it, I didn't feel good about it, like yeah. it was just, it's funny, but it's so cynical. And also there's so many jokes and my daughter's only nine and she didn't get a lot of it. So uh-huh. I did have to kind of convince myself that it was okay to watch Shit's Creek with my children. Cause there is a lot of adult humor, but I mean, it's hard to avoid that. And the soul of the show, I think is really sweet and sincere. Yeah, totally agree. And I just want to say that Myra Rose is an icon and yeah. I love her so much, so yeah. much. She's just- ridiculous and I just love it. Amazing. Her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I really would like to do a whole analysis of her accent someday because the other day we love old movies too and we just watched Charade over the weekend. You know, uh-huh. have you seen that Audrey Hepburn nope. movie? It's a great old movie with Walter Matthau and Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant. And listening to actually did have a European accent. Like there's a reason why she talked the way that she talked, but Catherine O'Hara's accent that she's created for Moira Rose is in some ways like Audrey Hepburn, you know, like the way that she talks. Um, And I'm sure that she's also integrating other sort of Hollywood stars with like very vague, indescribably continental accents. But I just think it's delightful. Yeah, Yeah, I love her. For sure. Well, I'm glad you're watching it and that you're- And today's actually Eugene Levy's birthday. I heard that. Is it? Yeah. Oh, happy birthday, Eugene Levy. Brilliant, son of a bitch. Okay. Second question. What is the last book that you read? I just got finished reading Uncanny Valley. Do you know about that? Nope. Okay. So it's, I read a lot of memoirs and this book is a memoir by a young woman who Anna Wiener is her name. And she is, she's now a writer for the New Yorker about the tech industry, Mm. um, Silicon Valley and all that. But this is her memoir about, um, how she started out, she's from New York, and she started out working in publishing as an assistant at a literary agency, which actually I did too. I had that same job. And then she left publishing to work for an internet startup in, I think, 2011. She doesn't specifically give a date, but that's what I pieced together. And then she eventually ends up going to San Francisco and working with a data analytics firm. And then she ends up working for GitHub, and she never names the companies that she worked for in this book, but the book is almost like, I mean, it's a memoir, but it's also like an expose. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, you would love it. It's wow. just like very closely observed, biting commentary mm-hmm. on sort of bro culture in startup world and on the naivete of all these mostly young, white, mostly male people who thought they could sort of like recreate the world and like do it better, <laughs> you know, yeah. than anyone else. And she, it's, it's also about her own sort of progression as she's, a, a, you know, initially in love with that world. And then she gradually sees what's wrong with it. And she never feels quite at home because she always has this kind of like literary liberal arts, you know, she's not a programmer. Mm-hmm. She works in like customer support. And so they all kind of looked down on her. But anyway, it, it, it's a really good book. And I read it with my book club. I really liked it. What's it called again? It's called Uncanny Valley. Uncanny Valley. I'm yeah. totally going to read it. It's not, that sounds like my jam. I think it would be. Yeah. yeah. She's, it's, it's a lot about 
internet culture yep. and just a really microscopic look at like how she kind of just lived on the internet, you know, in this kind of job where she, most of her interactions with her colleagues were online, you know, and then, and then they would go on these crazy scavenger hunts in San Francisco and all that sort of, you know, the other side of, of those kinds of businesses. But um, it's, it was really fascinating and really well-written. So cool. it's always exciting when you read something that's that well thought out and well written and the writer is still really young. I think I used to feel like, God damn it, <laughs> when that happened, you know, like kind of jealous, but I don't feel that way anymore. Now I just feel excited because she's still writing and she's still writing about this world and she has so much more life left and so much more to write. Wow. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Okay. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> I'm always reading, so it's always easy. It's true. This is one of the yeah. things I like about you. Okay. And then your final question is, what did you have for breakfast? I had oatmeal with apples and dates. Ooh, that's <laughs> a good breakfast. It was very fuzzy. Yeah. yeah oatmeal was me and the puppy. Oh, yes. Didn't hear at home. That's right. So you do, you, you just got a puppy. How long ago did you get this puppy? We got the puppy on Friday and um, he is two months old. And so we've had him for less than a week. And I have to say, I was really naive because I have never had a dog before. And I thought that they kind of arrived in the world, able to walk on a leash. And I <laughs> love to take long walks. And I was like, oh, great. I'm going to have a dog to go on walks with me. And um, he actually did the first couple of days when I didn't know any better. I did take him out and, and he walked around. But after day two, he just kind of like sat down and decided he did not want to do that. <laughs> and I looked on the internet and I realized that they're not supposed to be going on walks really at this age. Like he hasn't oh. had his booster shot yet. So we're actually not really supposed to be taking him out that much. So, uh -huh. and it's okay. Like he will learn eventually, but I have to gradually get him used to it. So I've almost been homebound <laughs> this week. Like I've been uh, at home with him while the kids are in school and my husband is at work and we just have the place to ourselves. And that's like I was saying, before we started recording, like it, it is really similar to being a new mother, mm -hmm. except a lot easier because I don't feel exhausted and I don't feel as stressed, you know? Yeah. And there's not a lot of crying. The crying part is the there's no crying part for me. No, yeah. there's no crying. And there's just a lot of cuteness. Excellent. Well, I am a little jealous. I do like your dog. I think it's incredibly cute from the pictures I've seen. However, I do feel like a dog is a little bit more work than I'm ever going to be able to commit to. Like I do feel I like they feel that way too. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I used to feel, I, I did not want a dog. It was my daughter that really convinced me. She really, really wanted a dog. Um, and we have two cats. And mm -hmm. so I love my cats and I honestly, I probably would have been okay with that, but my daughter really wanted a dog and she's, she, you know, she's had some struggles with being online, you know, remote schooling this year, and she transferred to a new school. And so we kind of felt like we wanted to get her a friend to have at home. So far, my cats are not a huge fan. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to ask, what the hell is the, like, my cats would be mad if I run yeah. They would be pissed. Well, I think like we have one, we have one cat that stays inside and another cat that's outdoors. And so the cat that's outdoors hasn't had a whole lot of interactions with Woody. Woody is a puppy. But one of my cats that's indoors, he is really angry at me. He uh -oh. still likes my husband, yeah. um, but he's definitely mad at me. And I, and he's really like, I got this picture of him the other day where Woody is just sleeping peacefully on the couch. And my cat is like perched on a bookshelf, sort of staring at him as though he's just going to like 
laser beams out of his eyes are going to come out and like destroy the puppy. I mean, he definitely doesn't like the puppy and the puppy really wants to play with him. So he'll actually take a ball and like nose it up to my cat Aww. and just, like, get into puppy play position. And he does not understand why this other weird puppy won't play with him. But <laughs> I think eventually they're going to, I, I pretty sure that one day I'm just going to come in and they're going to be snuggling together because my yeah. cat's getting closer and closer. So no. Oh. If he wanted to take him out, he would have. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> he sure. Would have for found sure. A way. Yeah. yeah, I remember when uh, we had our twins. We had a cat, and we brought them home. I remember bringing the twins home from the hospital, and the the cat just being like he he because the baby started crying, and the cat was like, "What the." And the next thing we know, right. he's sitting on top of the bookshelf, looking down at all of us, like, "You <laughs> sons of bitches! What are you doing? Why have you done?" That's what they do. Yeah, they were they find higher ground. Yeah. That's what they do. Yeah, our cat, he'll be on the refrigerator, just like looking down. He's like a sniper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my cat Elvis, and Elvis was not pleased. But yeah. from the sound of it, at least there's been no confrontation. So I think maybe no. your kitty will get used to puppy. Yeah. Yeah, I have faith. I have faith. Okay. I also, this is sexist of me, but I also kind of think that if my cat was a female, they would have already made friends. <laughs> Do you I think feel so? like, well, I've had female cats in the past and, and like I've introduced a new kitten and have found the cat, even though she was fixed, like she sort of took a maternal approach to the kitten eventually after she got over the shock. Yeah. And so I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe this is anthropomorphizing my cats but it seems like a male cat doesn't he he doesn't have that incentive like to be nurturing towards the puppy um and he also doesn't play like cats don't really play once they're not kittens it's so true. I, don't, I don't know how they're going to get along but i but i i think the i think they're at sort of a stage of detente right now and that's the best <laughs> that we can hope for <laughs> All right. Well, we you'll have to come back on the podcast and update us on the situation. I will. Yes. Okay. The Puppy Chronicles. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about you as a creator because you're you're one of these people that you're infinitely creative yourself, but then you're also the kind of person that goes around stimulating other people to be creative, right? <laughs> and I have experienced a real sort of creative renaissance since making friends with you because we did the artist way together, and we regularly, whenever we talk. Even though, even if we're talking about work, we'll always fit in something about, you know, our writing or mm -hmm. the work that we're doing or something that we're reading. And I really appreciate that about you. So talk to me about where you are right now as a creative person, because it's been a long journey for you. But I know that you've made some real changes and commitments to yourself in the last year or two. Yeah. Um, and, and how's that playing out? Well, first of all, thank you. And I feel the same way about you. I always know that after we talk, I have to build in some time to write because after I talk to you, I always either get new ideas of things that I want to write about or, you know, figure something out that I haven't quite been able to articulate before. So I'm glad that it's mutual. Yeah, I, it's been a journey. I think, I think the issue with me is that I've always been creative but there was a really big part of my life when I actively avoided that urge to be creative. Like I really tamped it down and I had a whole, I had a, like almost a slogan, you know, that I would say when people would notice, Hey, you're a really good writer. Or, you know, have you ever wanted to do something creative? And I would always say, well, the world doesn't need any more writers. The world really needs good readers. 
And I still think that's true. <laughs> you know, at least the second half of that sentence, I don't necessarily think it's true. The world doesn't need writers, but um, I really convinced myself that it was my place to be a reader and, um, and maybe an inspirer, sure, but not someone who is actually creating herself. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. It's the kind of thing that I'm talking about, you know, in therapy, uh -huh. um, which is which being in therapy has been a big part of, of helping me to, to make that shift and to be more creative. But I think it has a lot to do with the role models that I had growing up. And um, my mother has always written and my brother is a writer and my father is a writer and they all do it in different ways. And I think for myself, in my younger years, like really wanting stability, the idea of being creative or being a creative, which wasn't even really a noun, <laughs> you know, right. back then, um, that didn't feel like a realistic option to me. It felt like it felt scary. And so from that fear, um, it just wasn't something that I pursued. But um, I went to law school for the extremely misguided notion <laughs> that if I became a lawyer, I would have more time to read. And <laughs> I know it doesn't true. make any sense. Well, it doesn't make any sense until you consider that before I went to law school, I was, I was going to be a professor of Russian literature. So I was in a PhD program for Russian literature. And then I, I quit that and I went to work in publishing and, and I was an assistant literary agent. Both of those worlds, academia and publishing involve a lot of reading for work. Oh. And what I realized was this is too much reading for work and not enough reading for pleasure. Yeah. And also like, I never really found my people mm -hmm. when I was in those worlds. Like, I mean, I made friends. I still have some great friends from those jobs and those experiences, but I was always looking for people who wanted to read. Like I like to read and I just never found those people. So finally I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm not going to make this my profession. I'm going to go to law school, law school will, or, you know, being a lawyer will be my day job. And then I'll have time to read whatever I want to at night. <laughs> And um, it seemed kind of silly once, you know, when, when I say it like that, it seems like a silly plan, but it actually has worked out mm -hmm. after 15 years. I yeah. figured out a way to, to be a lawyer where most, you know, a lot of my job consists of writing. And because I don't work for a law firm where I have to bill hours and I no longer work full time, I'm now 80% Monday mm -hmm. through Thursday, I do have a lot of time to read. And that's what's, that's, what's really important to me. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I also think it's incredibly fascinating that all of these major life choices, I mean, I know maybe they can't all be boiled down here, but you really have allowed yourself to be driven by reading as a priority of your identity. That's a really interesting thing to say about you. And and I, I, I don't know that I know anybody that could say that has said that. Maybe Maybe that's true of them, but I, I don't know that people would, would be willing to admit that. I know. I think sometimes I'm a little weird. I remember I was in, when I was in college, I may have told you this story. I had a relationship with, it was kind of, I mean, it was a financial relationship. I got hired by a Russian couple to help the wife who was new to this country to speak English. And so we would spend a little bit of time speaking Russian and she was very patient with me. And then we would spend more time speaking English because that's what they were like paying for me to do. Mm -hmm. And she was so sweet. And she um, she asked me one time in a very like Russian way, you know, she's like, Sara, what is the most important thing to you in life? 
and I'm like a Russian literature major, you know, so of course I'm ready for the big questions. And I was like, oh, well, the most important thing for me is words. <laughs> and she just gave me this look and she was like, Sara, you are a very interesting person. And she was like, she said, and she said exactly what you are kind of intimating. She was like, I think most people would say friends or family. And I was like, oh, and then I walked it back, of course. I was like, no, 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 I love my family. I do love friends. But I mean, it was really that moment where I realized, oh, that is different about me. Or rather, I always had known that something was different about me, but I hadn't ever realized what it was. Right. But I don't think that that's a bad thing. In fact, I feel like that is what everyone really wants. That's what everybody's looking for. That is what I would define as a calling, <laughs> right? Yeah. And a lot of people spend their whole lives or a good portion of their lives trying to figure out what that is. And mm-hmm. for you to have been able to spontaneously just say that or or just to have known that so early in your life is a pretty great thing. Now, because society is the way it is, you know, you may have had to take a longer route to get to a place where you could mm-hmm. follow that calling. Because, you know, a lot of times people, all of us, we have this weird hierarchy of what's important and what are our, what, what should be our priorities and what should be a, a legitimate calling. Totally. Um, and I yeah, think, I think I was always following it though, one way or another. Yeah. yeah it's just yeah. that I didn't really see the path, you know, like it seemed so random. Yeah. Um, which is, and that's, we actually had this discussion in book club about Uncanny Valley because here's a book where this young woman leaves New York to work for this startup in San Francisco and she never seems like she's quite. She's always like kind of at a distance from that world. And so you might ask yourself, why did she do that to begin with? But um, I think all of the women in our book club didn't really have a hard time with that because, or at least, you know, the, the people who liked the book, everyone's been in their twenties, you know? And it's like, you do kind of get carried away with something. Um, and I feel like I made decisions that at the time might have seemed kind of spontaneous or random or like I wasn't following a path. But now that I'm 44, I look back and I'm like, oh no, all of these things sort of make sense. At least I've decided to make them make sense. (laughs) Do you think that we know, do you think that we intuitively all pretty much know what our calling is and that most of the time the challenge is trying to admit it to ourselves? (laughs) I don't know. I'm really lucky to have been raised by parents who encouraged me to be creative. And I almost rebelled the, the other way, you mm-hmm. know, like I, because my parents encouraged me to, to follow my dreams, I almost rebelled against that, you know, like, no, I will not follow my dreams. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll, teach you. I'll teach you. I will show you. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, it might've been easier to get in touch with what my calling was, even if I didn't know that that's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure if, if everybody, it's hard for me to know how, how, how that works for other people. Hmm. Interesting. So now what are you, what are you doing aside from being a faithful reader and, and actually being, you know, in a position where you can read far more regularly and more often and more deeply than you would have in you know, academia or publishing, what else are you doing that is allowing you to follow this inner voice or this calling of your love of words? Yeah, it really changed several years ago. And now when I look back, I kind of feel like, okay, I read books in order to become a woman, you know, like to learn. And I mean that, you know, there's definitely an element of gender in how I read books, like to figure out 
what it meant to be a woman and how a woman acts and how people think about women and all that. And then once I became a mother, somehow that's when I started wanting to write. And I've always kept a journal. Like I've always been somebody who writes a lot just for myself in a journal. And I've always written like any job that I have, I'm always the one who does like the newsletter (laughs) or edits, you know, articles or whatever, because writing is, is something that I enjoy. But it wasn't until pretty recently around um, 2016 that I started wanting to write with my own voice and not just as a professional expert in something, you know, basically writing about something that I didn't have a degree in was new to me. And I think it was partially, you know, 2016 was when I turned 40. And so I guess you could call it a midlife crisis, although I didn't experience it that way. I didn't feel like I was old all of a sudden. Um, But a lot of things happened in my personal life. My husband opened a restaurant. So that all of a sudden meant that it was much harder for me to continue working as many hours as I had and still taking care of our two kids. Um, And there was an election, as you recall, um, in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. So that really knocked me on my ass. It really impacted me. And it made me feel like I just, I I just couldn't, it, it was so hard to imagine how many people had voted for Donald Trump and what that said about how wrong some of us had been about this country and about what people in this country want. You know, it was such a shock and I'm not saying anything new here, but I personally have lived in red states and blue states. You know, I've lived in California, I've lived in New York, I've lived in Wisconsin, I've lived in Texas. Um, I've traveled to Russia. Like, And it wasn't until 2016 when I sort of was feeling the weight of that election that it occurred to me that having lived in all of those different places and also, you know, being a person who likes to read and to learn about other people, I guess, had taught me to empathize with people who are not like me Mm -hmm. and that that's actually special. Like I hadn't, I had taken that for granted. I think I thought more people were like that. And when I saw so many people voting for Donald Trump, I mean, there were so many reasons that that happened. And I think we'll be parsing it out for many years. But one way to look at it is that a lot of people voted for Donald Trump because they are afraid of like the other, you know, and they, they have this kind of like xenophobic um, instinct, you know, and that just, I just don't relate to that. So that was, I think, when I started wanting to say, hey, there's something actually relevant about the experience that I've had in my life. And I think also being a mother helps. Like you learn to speak with authority <laughs> once you're <laughs> bossing around two little kids. It's true. Um, and I, I was no longer afraid, you know, I just wasn't afraid to, to say things with my own voice anymore. So since that time, I did think about going back to school. I talked to a lot of friends of mine who are writers, and I looked into the idea of getting an MFA. There's all these like low residency MFA programs that you can do, but um, I've already got a master's degree and a law degree, and I don't think my marriage would survive another degree. So I decided not to do that. And instead, I've just been putting together my own sort of education and writing through taking classes in Austin and, you know, local, getting to know local writers. And it's been amazing because once you put it out there, I mean, people really do, there's just a whole community here Mm -hmm. and everyone is so welcoming. So I found a lot of really good teachers and I've had, I, this is, this is like, you know, it's like what I do now on the weekends. I take writing classes. I've taken a class in poetry, which I never imagined I would do. So it's really been great. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about this 
compulsion that you seem to have about having to go to school for certain things. <laughs> I appreciate the value of formal education, but I also feel like you can't or you, sh you shouldn't have to go get a degree in something like writing to be good at it. And yeah. a lot of people, a lot of the most brilliant writers and creative thinkers are people who never went to school to be writers. They may mm -hmm. go to school for other things, but then they kind of allowed themselves to pursue this path of creativity and and brought along their education, their other education with them. But it, you know, I don't think that that's a prerequisite for being an authentic, published, and respected writer. Um, oh, I do too. And and I don't think it was in this case. I mean, maybe in the past, I would have had more of kind of an inferiority complex about the kinds of schools that I went to and would have thought, oh, I need to get a degree in something, but I don't feel that way anymore. I think the reason that I want to take classes now is just because once I started writing, I had this almost this really intense physical need like for other people to read my stuff and tell me what's good and what's not. Uh -huh. And if you don't pay people to do that, your friends are going to eventually get sick of you. <laughs> <laughs> like you need to find, you know, people who are, who are good at giving feedback and who want to do that with you and taking a writing class is the best way to do that. So I actually think I'm really happy now that mm -hmm. I didn't get an MFA because I don't have any illusions about what that world would be like. I think I've been in grad school. Like I remember, you know, what that was like, but taking classes on the weekends and at night in Austin is super fun because, yeah. and now, you know, everything's virtual now. So I got to take a class with a friend of mine in California Oh, great. Um, I'm in a class right now with people all over the world. There's a woman from India and a, a woman in Canada, and I think maybe a woman in Australia who's taking this class. So that's a really fun thing too, just the opportunity to talk with other people about writing. That's yeah. the part that's, I love that part just as much as I love the writing itself. Yeah. Yeah. And so the first episode of this series of this podcast was with my friend Eileen, who she actually uh, started out as an artist, artist, as a visual artist, went to art school. And in our conversation, she talks about how art school has ruined her, right? Like now she sits down oh, no. to do art and she overthinks it, right? Mm. And she's turned into a writer uh, mm -hmm. in the last few years, which was never something she planned on doing. She, she just sort of stumbled into it. She started doing a cartoon of mm -hmm. her and her husband and then ended up just writing some essays to go with it and then ended up just kind of falling in love with the process. How fun. And, and I think that that's, so I'm, I'm seeing this kind of interesting similarity there because now she, she's never, I don't, well, she may have taken some classes here and there, but uh, she's found like a community mm -hmm. of people who are also writers and that's where she is getting so much of her feedback and so much of her stimulation and encouragement and enthusiasm is mm -hmm. that it seems as though there are people who are as passionate about the process of writing as they are reading and putting their own stuff out there and are really interested in the exchange among writers yeah. around that process. Yeah, it's so I'm having this moment that reminds me of something earlier in my life where when I was working at the literary agency, this is right before I decided to go to law school in 2002 in New York. And that was back when we negotiated writer contracts on like 11 by 17 legal size paper, you know, and we had to use whiteout and like uh. write things in <laughs> and type type things on top of the whiteout in just the right spot. Like it was it was really, really tedious. 
that was, it's a very old fashioned industry and no one else in the literary agency at that time enjoyed working with contracts. And I was the only person who was like kind of interested in the language of the contract and in interpreting what it meant. And that was when I realized I should probably go to law school. Like it had always been something I'd thought about because my father is a lawyer, but I never really seriously considered it until then. And I also wanted more stability. So that's what made that decision. So now I'm doing these classes where we have, you know, workshops where we give each other feedback on our writing. And I find that like a lot of other people in the class are like taking Xanax, you know, or like not sleeping the night before their stuff is going to get worked up. Like they're all really anxious about it, or they don't like giving commentary on other people's work. I love it. So I'm having a feeling of this maybe is what I ought to be doing more of, you know, because it's, interesting to pay attention to the things that that you like that other people don't or that other people find work and you find joy so in the next year in 2021 I just secured for myself an unpaid TA position <laughs> for a writing class like a six-month memoir writing class um, with a writer who I really like and I'm not going to get paid for it but I do get to take the class as her teaching assistant so I'm so excited and I'm, I'm telling my friends like it's funny that I feel you know like I've been pretty successful in my legal career, but I am more excited about this unpaid position than I have about anything else that's happened to me professionally. And seriously, (laughs) yeah, seriously, like sometimes you have to do things for free or just for fun. Like, and, and you know what, that is exactly what the hell this podcast is. Like I will never get rich doing this podcast. I freaking love doing it. Like, yeah. And I, I was actually telling Eileen this a couple of weeks ago when we went, we had gone for a walk and I was like, you know, I have made a decision, a commitment to myself to do things that resonate, that make mm-hmm. me feel good. Right. Yeah. And, and to hell with it, to hell with yeah. trying to prove to somebody else that it has value or whatever. If it's, if it turns me on and I don't feel like it's work and I just want to do that all day, I know yeah. it's something I should be doing. Right. And the world needs more people doing that. Like, right. you know, doing that makes them come alive. Um, have we talked about Ruth Stroud? Uh-uh. Okay. She is a gardener. She Do you garden? Oh, I'm a terrible gardener. I am too. I'm a really like, especially now that I have a dog and I need <laughs> to keep him from eating things, but I'm like, oh, it's kind of dying anyway. Anyway, I'm a very half-assed gardener, but in my imagination, I would love to be the kind of person who has a beautiful garden And so we did start one in our backyard and my godmother who lives here in Austin and is also a writer, um, her name's Beverly Voss and she writes poems. She gave me this book by someone named Ruth Stroud, who I I think she was around in the thirties, maybe. Um, She's just a fascinating character. She wrote a book called how to have a green thumb without a broken back or without a sore back or something. And it's all about her method of gardening, which is that she takes her compost And I mean, she just takes her garbage, like she doesn't actually turn it into compost. She just puts it directly in the dirt. And um, this is my kind of garden. Oh, totally. (laughs) Yeah. She's famous for that method. She's also famous for gardening in the nude. Um, Yeah. Oh, no, she's amazing. Like some way from like the 30s. She was in the 1930s. Yeah. Yeah. 20s or 30s. And she in her book, it's also a bit of a memoir. She writes about how she lived in New York and she had a job and she was making money and everything. And, and then she realized that she loved hours more than dollars. And so she just left the job and they got a farm, they got a big farm in upstate New York. And she just did that for the rest of her life. And she actually ended up like going to Russia. And I think she had a 
like um, love affair with communism for a while, like you did back then. I don't know, but she's a really interesting character. And that line of loving, I can't remember if it's hours or time, but loving time more than money, uh -huh. that just, that really changed my life. Just reading yeah. that one sentence, I was like, oh, well, me too. I don't need to make as much money as I make. Like, mm -hmm. we'd be okay. And that's when I started cutting back my hours. Yeah, that's freaking awesome. Like, yeah. I, this woman sounds like somebody I should totally know. She's, Who the hell just quits her job and decides to naked garden? That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> She's really cool. Look her up. Yeah, I will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I, I get the fact that, you know, one of the shitty things about our society is that not everyone can do that, right? Some people are really in a position where they have to work and they have to work way more hours than they need, like, need to. They don't get the option of saying, well, I could cut back and still be okay because they can't right. that sucks but also right. it sucks that the you know the, there's this treadmill that people get on where that becomes the only measure of success yeah and, and you know I do think that like those of us who can afford not to accumulate more wealth should not accumulate more wealth maybe you know I mean not just for not wealth for wealth's sake anyway like yeah at some point we do need to think about my kids going to college <laughs> right now that seems so far away but you know I'm not I'm not quitting my job anytime soon I love my job I'm mm. so grateful that I have the ability to to work somewhere that appreciates me as a whole person you mm -hmm. know mm -hmm. uh, and I get to do unique projects working there has been a really good thing for me and I don't mean to say that I take my job for granted at all but it was it was more like naming my priorities yeah 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 and realizing that I didn't need to suffer as much as I was making myself suffer because right. back then also my husband was working crazy hours because he had opened the restaurant. And so he worked afternoons and evenings. I worked mornings and afternoons. We never saw each other, mm -hmm. you know, and um, we were always, we were co-parenting basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was really a survival tactic as well as a way to, to be more creative. Yeah, I totally get that. And to me, it's more of, it's allowing your, your definition of what it means to be successful to, to broaden, to say that it's not being uh, unreasonable or selfish or greedy to say, yeah, yeah, I have a great job. I make a, a lot of money, but, but you know what would really make me happy is this creative endeavor, this thing that's maybe not you know, what everyone else would consider even necessary, but it's necessary yeah. to me. And mm -hmm. I am willing to sacrifice some of this to get some of that because it'll balance me out. It'll make my life right. a better quality of life. And yeah, I don't and think that that's a bad thing. No. And I do, I like the way you put it because it is about, it's almost about paying yourself. Like I remember people, when I first said that I was going to be working four days a week, some people would say, oh, good for you. You deserve that. Or, you know, I have friends who are like, oh, you're so good at carving out time for yourself. And I kind of hate that phrase, even uh -huh. though I know they mean well, I buy my fucking time. Like yeah. <laughs> I am not carving it out. Like it's a pie and there's a piece for everybody. You know, it is, I'm paying for this time 
for me and my dog to sit outside and watch the leaves fall. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it, there's another part of my life that is always suffering at that moment. Like either my, ch my children are being neglected or my job is being neglected or I'm not reading a book that I wanted to read or my husband, bless his heart, is missing me and wishing that I was doing something with him. Like you're always paying something. Right. Um, but it, it's important to me to have the time to kind of spread out and do nothing or let my mind wander. And, and so it's worth it to me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not something that any of us are really encouraged to do, uh, but especially I think still not women. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think women are encouraged to do it in this really fake sort of self-care kind of yes. way, you yes. know, that is really consumerist exactly. at heart. Like exactly. it's so much about, you know, getting a manicure. It's not only consumerist it's really I think it's classist you know because it's uh -huh. really like who's giving you the manicure or who's who's waiting on you at the spa day or whatever and um why do you deserve to purchase things for yourself I'd rather just have time yeah. <laughs> I'd rather just make less money and have more time nope totally totally get that totally get that you know we I've been thinking a lot lately because my mother-in-law passed away this last year the you know just a couple of months ago and thinking about, and I guess everybody does this, at some point you start reflecting on your mortality and, you know, what is it that you want out of life? And, and in the most concrete way, you know, this year has showed me that we can't take anything for granted. Like things yeah. are going to be, you're, you, you don't get an unlimited, like a video game. You don't get to keep, you know, <laughs> regenerating your life. Like you're done right. when you're done. And the question is, what is it that's going to make you make your life having been you know worth all of this and right and the the answer isn't always and almost never is about what we've created in our minds collectively as success or or achievement it's it's almost right. always these moments of or experiences you know things like being with nature and mm -hmm. and relationships and opportunities to create and opportunities to serve and all of these things that are that give life meaning yeah i think it helped me I, I don't know if I ever, I know, I, I, you know, I don't think I ever consciously thought that I was trying to succeed um, in something or, you know, achieve sort of external measures of success. But I think I was, even if I didn't really think about it. We and all I do are. Think, yeah, because it's natural. That's, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the water we all swim in, I guess. Yeah, so it's, exactly. it's hard to, hard to get out of that. But I do think it helped when I started to go to therapy and listen to meditation podcasts and stuff like that. And, you know, they, my therapist and also some other people I've heard talk about being in a liminal state, mm -hmm. you know, and um, that when you start healing from something, you, you might find yourself in sort of a liminal state for a really long period of time, but that really all of life is a liminal state. Like you're always in between birth and death, you know, and you don't know how long that period is going to be. And I've been thinking about that just this week, spending all this time with the puppy because it's such a strange transaction, you know, to get a new pet. Mm -hmm. Cause you know, especially when like me, you've, you've had a few pets, like, okay, you get this new animal and if all goes well, 12 to 15 years from now, I will be facilitating his execution. Right. Like that's the best case scenario, you know, for us. Right. Um, and it's such an odd thing that we do that, I guess, in recognition of 
how much we just love being with that animal. So it really is. And that's, I think that having pets kind of focuses you on the present moment. Mm -hmm. Um, But then if you think about like, why do people have children? I mean, among other reasons, like people have children because they want someone to mourn them when they're gone, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's almost like all of us are like time markers for each other's lives. And none of us, we don't know how long it's going to be. So I do, I do think spending a lot of time with my puppy helps me be in the moment. That's amazing. In the present. Yes. Yes. Animals are so good at being Zen, right? They just, they do have the ability to, to fully live, to fully experience life as it is when it's happening. And, you know, I, I practice Zen for a while and that's one of the things that they're, you know, that we're always trying to do is like, are you, you know, you're cutting vegetables, but instead of cutting vegetables, you're doing like 12 other things with your brain. Right. You know, are you able to do what needs to be done right then and right there and fully do it? And know that you're walking to sit and know that you're sitting. And yeah. yeah. And it's a beautiful practice because of that. And, uh, and animals definitely help remind us about that. Yeah. Just watching him bound across our backyard. <laughs> like he doesn't even know how long our backyard is yet. Cause he's so little and he's so new to it. And he's just like sniffing it out. He's just trying to figure out how long it is. You know, what's yeah. the shape of this thing. Yeah. And um, it's, it's just, it's fascinating to him. Every time he goes outside, it's a pleasure to watch. Yeah. It's also interesting how the most simple things, something that you might even consider mundane. I mean, millions of people have pets, right. And but like when you experience something like this, it can, it can trigger these, this just sort of line of thought that may an altered work. state almost. Yeah. 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 I think it's um, to go back to what we were saying earlier. I feel like for me, becoming a mother did that with language kind of like, you know, you see your children learn language and you read with them for the first time. So I sort of, and I'm not the only person who's said this, like there's Rachel Cusk writes about this in her own book about motherhood. But when you're someone who cares a lot about language to begin with, and then you get to experience that learning with your child and read some of the same things that maybe you read as a child, but like read them with your child. It's Mm. just, it's so fruitful. It's so fertile for creativity. And that, I think if I hadn't gone through that, I don't know if I ever would have wanted to write the way that I want to write now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting line of thinking around the fact that you, your children were your catalyst almost for your, your personal voice and your writing, right? Mm-hmm. Like up until that point, you were a great reader, you were writing professionally, but then you had kids and suddenly you were like, I want to write now in my own voice. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that needed means. to. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's really fascinating. I don't think it's just me though. I think it's, um, I've had this conversation with other women who are my age and, and I've had it, this conversation with women who don't have children too. Like it's possible that it's um, hormonal. <laughs> I don't know. You know, um, we are a cauldron of hormones in my house right now. We've talked about this before. Like I've yeah. got my 12 year old son and I'm 44 and we're just all up in hormones. <laughs> and so there's definitely a, a sense of change and in, you know, entering a new phase of life that I'm almost like, reckoning with things I didn't have time to process earlier when I was too busy being a new attorney and a new mother and trying to prove myself and um, make the right decisions, you know, and beating myself up for not doing the right thing. I just don't care as much about that stuff anymore. I'm just more 
interested in, in my dog and the leaves. Good. Well, I am going to continue to be your friend for as long as I can, because I just feel like knowing you inspires some of the best in me. And what more is a friend? What is a friend for? Except for that, (laughs) right? Like that is what friendship is. Yeah, no, you, I, your friendship has been really wonderful for me too. It's because of you and our conversation about friendship that I feel really committed to having reciprocal friendships now. (laughs) Remember when we talked about that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, people, period, people who will show up, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a period um, for our listeners when Sarah introduced me to this book, The Artist's Way. And it's sort of a, I think it's like 12 plus, 12 plus weeks of reading and exercises. And part of what we did is we met before work every, like every week in the morning, uh, I think Wednesdays or something, mm-hmm. and went through this stuff. But the the book itself is incredibly provocative for creative people because it doesn't just ask you to do things it asks you for some incredibly difficult <laughs> reflection and uh soul searching and and it was not at all what I expected that it was going to be I thought we were just going to do huh. writing exercises but oh it, interesting yeah it was a really intense experience and so not only was the artist way kind of intense but then I had this this partner uh in, in you someone who is such a deep thinker, such a deep feeler, and such a creative mind to talk through these things with. And, and it wasn't, I mean, it was just sort of a, one of those like gifts that life gives you that Yay. I, I had agreed to do this thing. It sounded cool, but I agreed to do a lot of things that sound cool. I didn't right. realize <laughs> how transformative it would be for me. And it really changed the trajectory of how I was looking at myself, awesome. you know, my creative you know, yeah. endeavors. See, and it's so interesting that you were able to come with an open mind to the artist way, because I think I told you when we started it, that my mother was really big on the artist way. It's mm-hmm. an old book. It's like kind of dated, you know, yeah, in certain yeah, yeah. ways. Um, it's from the seventies, I think. And I very much associated it with my mom and like her sort of second wave feminist, free to be you and me kind of approach to the world that I have a little chip on my shoulder about, you know, at this point, even though it's, it, it, it was great. You know, my mom is great. I don't mean that she's not great, but like when you grow up with something, you sort of laugh at it and you take it for granted. And to me, like the artist way seems like the epitome of just cheesiness. Mm -hmm. And I was so afraid of that cheesiness that I didn't really want to do it. And I can't even remember what changed my mind, but I think I was just so desperate for, cause when I did it with you, it was the second time, the first time I did it by myself. And I think I was just so desperate for something that would start the juices flowing, you know, to start me writing in a different way, something different from my work writing, different from what I do in my journal. And the, the really, the two big takeaways that I got from the artist way was first this idea of like the, I can't remember what she calls them, but she has a name for the, the careers that you have that are like art adjacent. Uh-huh. Do you remember that? Uh-huh. It's like where you've kind of been fooling yourself your whole life by doing things that are almost what you want to do, but not quite. And I realized that was what I was doing, like through being you know, studying Russian literature as an academic, working in publishing, even being a lawyer, like none of those were things that were going to feed my 
creative urges, but they all still kind of kept me in this world Mm -hmm. of reading and writing only as a passive consumer of it or appreciator of it and not a doer of it. Um, So that was really profound to realize that. And then the other thing that has been great is the morning pages. I still do them and I have now for years. And I think I probably always will. Although it's a little challenging now with the puppy because he wants to like (laughs) chew on my notebook, (laughs) but I still get up early every morning and I still write three pages by hand. And um, that is like the only practice that I've ever able been able to be like completely faithful to. Yeah. I think the thing that I took out of that, I mean, I took so much out of it, but the, the, the real, I think thing that was sort of keeping me stuck was this idea that I didn't have a right because I'm not a fucking genius, right? <laughs> like I'm not brilliant. I'm not what everybody wants out of, you know, their entertainment or their literature or whatever. Like it's entirely possible. I will live out my entire life and the majority of humanity will never know my name and my work. <laughs> and yet I still have yet, a right to do it. I right. still have a right to it because it is who I am. Right. And this ridiculous idea of continuing to ignore it or pretend like it's not important just because I'm not fucking on the New York Times bestseller list doesn't it's not fair to myself. And and that's crap. And to have it just so bluntly put out there and to recognize that I was not being fair to myself by Mm -hmm. allowing me to do what what I know I I need to do to be happy was a huge boon for me. Yeah, good. Yeah, I didn't even realize how much baggage I had about ideas like that until, and I still am learning, like I took this poetry class and it's so funny that it took me this long to try to write poetry because I love poetry. And when I was in grad school, that's what I was studying. My college thesis project was translating Russian poetry. And yet I never thought that I personally could write a line of poetry. I love puns. I love language. I love other, you know, I've I've learned Russian. I've studied other languages. Like all of these things (laughs) are sort of like, okay, well, poetry is basically like the essence of language. And if you love language, like there's a real direct connection there. But I think that I, because of, in part, because of learning about poetry through sort of this old fashioned, very masculine sort of Russian lens that was presented to me during my time in academia. Like I just didn't take it seriously. I didn't take poetry in English seriously. I didn't take myself seriously. I didn't take myself as a woman seriously. I really didn't think that I could or would enjoy doing that. And now I'm just enthralled. That's been one of the the best things that's happened to me in the past year. Fantastic. That's so inspiring. And my God, you should write all the poetry you want. (laughs) Well, and just to plug, like the the teacher that I found here, she's a local person. Her name is Susan Niz or Niz. I'm not sure how she says it. Her last name is Mm N-I-Z. And her philosophy of teaching is very simple. It's called You Are a Poet, which I love. And I took a class with her, um, Jasmine Whiteman, who you also know was in that class. We both loved it. And I'm about to take another one from her coming up soon online. So. Oh, how exciting. I should take it. I do. I love writing poetry. I, I don't even care. I mean, I don't even care if people like my poetry. I love writing and I, I have since I was a child. So uh, just like owning it. I think, I think everybody should write poetry. 
I, I, I do too. Yeah. Well, and there was this great moment where someone in class, it may have been me, said something like kind of apologetic, like, oh, I guess that's that's maybe too poetic or something like that. And Susan, the teacher, just said in this really like funny way, she was like, sorry, you're a poet. <laughs> like, <laughs> sorry. Like she was, I mean, I think she was pointing out like, metaphor is just naturally the way that people think. Yeah. And yeah. why do we denigrate it? You know, I mean, I think it had, I, I think I know partly why I think partly like there's this elevation of, you know, what we consider to be rational, linear, Western yep. thought, you know, and so we downgrade the, the metaphorical, but it's always there. Mm -hmm. It's just natural. So I'm, I'm really happy that I'm finding a, an avenue for that. Mm -hmm. And you should take a class. It'd be fun. Now yeah. I want to take that class that you guys I will tell you about it. All right. Well, I will let you get back to your puppy and your writing and your job and all of the other, your family, all these other important things that you have. But I do appreciate you taking time to talk to me on my passion project. The yeah. Podcast. <laughs> so fun. And I will uh, I'll link to some of the stuff that you talked about, including your book recommendations. And then folks can follow you on Twitter. And anyone who has a chance to get to know you is very, very lucky. Oh, thank you. I feel the same about you. All right, enough of that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right, have a good afternoon, my friend. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.